You're listening to the Let's Talk Strata podcast hosted by Mark Mercier. Whether you're a tenant, lot owner, caretaker or industry professional, this podcast is for anyone connected with a body corporate or strata title. Tune in every fortnight to hear thought-provoking discussions with industry leaders and experts on topics both practical and technical that will spark your interest. Welcome again to the Let's Talk Strata podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to bringing you cutting-edge views from pinnacle industry experts on all things Strata in Queensland. Today, our special guest is Jason Carlson. A little bit about Jason. Jason is the director and partner at Grace Lawyers here in Brisbane. Now, Jason began practicing in law in 2008 and quickly developed a passion for Strata and Strata law. Indeed, from a very early stage in his career, he focused extensively on Strata. Jason is now director at Grace Lawyers, a firm that acts for bodies corporates, owners corporations and Strata managers across all eastern seaboard states. Jason joined Grace Lawyers in 2015 as a 29-year-old and in the same year was listed as finalist in the dispute resolution category of the Lawyers Weekly 30 Under 30 an awards program that identifies the best young lawyers across Australia. In 2016, Jason was elected to the Board of Directors for Strata Community Association, or SCA, being the peak industry body for Strata, and has been a member of its legislation committee since 2013. As a director of SCA in Queensland, he has led the charge on improving the quality and engagement levels of educational offerings for Strata managers and Strata lawyers and anyone connected with Strata and has pushed for the introduction of support networks for new entrants to the Strata management industry. Welcome Jason, it's a real pleasure to chat with you today on Strata Issues. Now, just a few things, uh, what brings you to Strata? When I started practice I initially wanted to be in litigation. So I joined quite a large firm on the Gold Coast at the time that had uh, a very broad litigation practice. So I was doing things, um, uh, commercial litigation, planning and environment litigation and also strata. And um, I took a a warming to one of the partners that oversaw the strata litigation practice and we worked well together and I naturally fell into it. I can't say that... um, uh, throughout my years in university, I spent any more than an hour or two even looking at community title law. It was something that I fell into by virtue of practice. It's a difficult area to start into straight out of law school because they don't really teach that uh, area of law much, do they? No, not at all. I, uh, I remember back through uh, university, um, I spent five years at university, five years studying law, and throughout all of that time, I can only ever recall two lectures, two hours each, that touched on community title law. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first lecture I attended, because I had quite a good afternoon session at the university bar, so I had mm. to spend a bit more time before I could drive home. And um, and the second one, um, I, I did it on the books. Right. Uh, Strat is a, a very new industry yeah. when you think about residential living, and it's even newer in terms of the law, and it's a very discreet area. And, of course, there's been a lot of growth in Strata and Strata law. We've got reforms on the horizon, and it's a very fluid area of law, but complex, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is complex in the sense that there isn't a great deal of literature and um, people like yourself are starting to address that by um, creating a body of literature around strata law. Um, you're right in describing it as fluid because my view of strata law is that it's there to shape human behaviour, how we live, to e live with each other. Yeah. And it's fluid in the sense that how we live with each other changes from year to year. The things that we tolerate change from year to year. I use smoking as a good example of that. Mm. Back in 2012, there was a QCAT decision that came out that essentially affirmed that at that time, one person smoking on their balcony, which caused smoke drift in Queensland to another person's balcony, didn't amount to a nuisance because they saw it as an ordinary use of one's lot. I'm a big believer that if the same set of circumstances came before the tribunal in today's day and age, I think society's moved enough uh, on the issue of smoking, that it could be seen as a, a nuisance. Yeah, a nuisance is uh, really a matter of degree, isn't it? Um, uh, how much impact do you have on another person's right to enjoy their lot? It's a difficult thing to assess, and certainly smoking has gained a lot of uh, leverage by way of um, you know, some um, laws that restrict it. And um, do you see that much as a growing trend across a number of different issues across strata. Yeah, in terms of the laws changing, absolutely. Yeah. But the point that I was getting to is um, the test for nuisance. You don't have regard to the impact of the behaviour or the conduct on the person that it's offending. Mm -hmm. You have regard to the impact of the conduct on a person of ordinary sensitivities. Mm -hmm. And I think what we consider to be a person of ordinary sensitivities is fluid. Yeah. And the law has to meet that person of ordinary sensitivities. Uh, a large part of the strata law reform in, uh, reform in Queensland has been focusing on how do we update legislation that was drafted in 1996 and 1997 to reflect the way that we live and we do business in the 21st century. Because it's, 20, it's you know, 20 years on. Oh, absolutely. And who would have thought that you could carry around a small device about the size of a deck of cards <laughs> exactly. and you had access to all of this information available in the world. And indeed, you could run, for example, a general meeting off it. Yeah. You didn't even need to attend the same room anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, the issue of technology is a big thing as well when you talk about strata. The law is always slow to pick up on technological advancements and you know we still have to um, send out notices of AGMs and EGMs by post. You know that's certainly something that uh, I, I'm guessing government will look at uh, at some point in the future. Yeah well it's on the cards. The, um, the, the proposals that have been put forward mm. by government is to update it in the sense of allowing general meeting notices to be given electronically for mm. people to opt in and one of the points of tension um, from those that are involved in this law reform has been balancing the generation coming through that have lived and breathed technology mm. to the older generations that are still catching up. And a large part of the strata legislation is balancing different types of people that are living within these communities. And the challenge is going to be to introduce legislation that respects the way that many different people live and the many different the different ways that we want to interact with our body corporate so that you can allow the younger generation to receive a general meeting notice on their phone while respecting that there may be other people in the community that still want the three inches of paper being mm. delivered and, and going through the ritual of checking the post every morning. 
Yeah, and so much about uh, strata law is about, uh, you know, being reasonable, managing the rights of owners to vote, for example, and, you know, even the concept of reasonableness has uh, seen some changes in the new High Court decision, uh, Ainsworth and Albrecht, uh, the issues that we don't quite see in those high courts. But uh, they're starting to get traction as people gain more knowledge about their rights, about disputing, you know, what is fairly complicated law sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think the the revolution, if I can put it, in terms of reasonableness and the law that the High Court decision of Ainsworth and Olbrick really brought out was not so much empowering individuals to challenge the reasonableness of decisions. I think the Ainsworth decision was most significant because it acted as a shield against people constantly challenging a community's decisions on the, on the grounds of reasonableness. The way that I saw the law prior to the Ainsworth decision was that somebody could challenge the reasonableness of a community's decision because they did not like it. And as long as they could find an adjudicator that shared their point of view and agreed that they had the better argument of the two, then the decision could be overturned. But Ainsworth really flipped that on its head and said, no, the, the proper approach is not for you to determine who's got the better argument, who's being more reasonable than the other, but it's actually to defend a community's decision, to say mm. this is the way that we want to live and this is the standard of expectation that we have for this particular community. And short of you finding us to be inherently unreasonable and illogical in holding that view, you need to respect the decision that the community has made. And I think that's really empowering for where Strata needs to go in the future. Oh, absolutely. And um, as a member of the Legislation uh, Committee for SCA, I'm guessing you explore a lot of these moving trends and flows in the legislation and looking forwards to the reforms even. How do you find your work in that body in shaping views about the changes in the legislation? Yeah, well, the work in that body has been somewhat frustrating in the last couple of years because three to four years ago we were having those discussions and we were talking about trends in society and what we can do and that was the dialogue three to four years ago. The dialogue today has been, okay, we've had that discussion, we've come up with these suggestions, can we get something done about them? Um, so the point that I'd make there is that time for talking about those things has probably ended <laughs> many years ago and it's time to actually start implementing the law reform. Queensland started this process years ago and other states have started and finished it <laughs> mm. within the after after we even began the discussion. Yeah, so in a nutshell, it's a time for action, isn't it? Uh, and we, I guess in some ways, we're fortunate, um, maybe that's a double-edged sword, but uh, we have some very comprehensive legislation on strata, don't we? Yeah, the a district court judge once described it as um, over-prescriptive as it is incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've, absolutely. We've got three rules for everything. Absolutely, you only need to look at the definition of uh, financial year and when it begins uh, to really know how difficult it can be to follow some of these provisions. Absolutely. Now, in terms of moving right to the beginning of the life of a body corporate, um, obviously a developer decides at one point in time, yes, we want to undertake development and it's going to be strata. What are the challenges ensuring that a development proceeds in the way that the legislation intends for developers to really develop that scheme, that community? Yeah, well, the challenge, I suppose, is coming up with a built product that's going to last, that's going to last and be in the best interests of the people that are going to inherit the property that mm. the developer ha has 
brought up from the ground. And the legislation has been drafted in a way that it imposes duties on developers that when they make these really significant long-term decisions for their product that other people are going to inherit, that they're going to act in the best interests of the people that are going to own lots when they eventually sell them. So the challenge is, I imagine for a developer, is being conscious of the commercial priorities that they obviously have in undertaking development, but balancing that against the duties that they ultimately owe to the people that they sell that property to. So, yeah, absolutely. And developers are in a very powerful position up front, aren't they? Establish caretaking and letting agreements, body corporate management appointments. What are some of the difficulties you've found in your practice once the developers establish these matters and the body corporate starts to gain control? What are some of the things you've found in your practice as problematic, perhaps leading to disputes? Mm. Well, um, one of the examples that you gave of something that a developer puts in place for the long term is a caretaking agreement, management Mm. rights for the scheme. If the scheme's been established so that the accommodation module of the legislation applies, then that agreement cannot be up to a term of 25 years. 25 years is a long period of time to be bound by a contract. And uh, these developers have the ability to put it in place. They have a statutory duty to act in the best interests of lot owners when they put it in place, a duty to ensure that the terms are fair and balanced. But if they don't comply with that duty, there isn't a great deal that lot owners and the successive body corporate can do about it. There is an ability under the legislation for that body corporate to essentially review the fairness and reasonableness of that contract, of that caretaking agreement. But there's a limited window in which it has to do that. The rule of thumb is it's essentially three years. It's essentially three years from when the contract's established. But in order to exercise that right, the body corporate needs to authorise a request being made to review the fairness and reasonableness. And that authority has to be given in a general meeting. Now, I said earlier how a district court judge described the regulation module as being as over-prescriptive as it is incomprehensible. And Mm. this is a good example of it. Mm. You'd know well yourself, Mark, that in order for a body corporate to make any decision in general meeting, you've got all of this red tape that you need to go through. Absolutely. And you eventually get through that red tape, they've made the request to review it, they go through a negotiation, the body corporate then needs to call a further general meeting to make a final decision on what the reviewed terms are gonna be. So the body corporate's gone through all of this trouble to come up with fairer and more reasonable balanced terms now that it's in an arm length position to, to renegotiate it and they've got to call a second general meeting. Now let's say hypothetically the, the caretaker doesn't agree with the final decision made by the body corporate. That decision isn't binding yeah. on the caretaker. It then throws the parties into litigation in front of uh, Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal. So notionally you have these remedies in the legislation to rebalance these long-term decisions that have been imposed on lot owners, but to exercise those remedies, you really Mm. have owners bending over backwards if they even know that they exist in the first place. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Uh, To know that that right exists to even go down that pathway. And they're complicated matters to even execute, even from a body corporate manager perspective, because uh, whilst the body corporate manager has an appointment from the developer, they're also acting in the best interests of the body corporate. So there's some internal conflict, if you like, 
obviously you'd like to think that the body corporate manager is always you know acting in the best interest of the body corporate however you've got this tension if i could put it that way to bring those processes and power lot owners in that same breath there yeah absolutely dr nicole johnson she's been doing a great deal of uh, work for the strata industry and strata law in particular and mm. she did a, a wonderful paper on this for a doctorate and um, uh, she was looking at the conflicts that are inherent in uh, development of community title schemes mm. and the, the significant power that a uh, developer has when, when they establish these developments. And the introduction of a relationship of a body corporate manager is a good example of that. Uh, the developer can essentially pick and choose who that body corporate manager is going to be. And as, as anyone that provides a service would appreciate, if somebody calls upon you to do that service and will remunerate you for that, you owe a sense of loyalty to them. But then the tension that you alluded to is that tightrope that a body corporate manager has to walk because they want to be at that scheme for a longer period than a year or three years. You yeah. know, three years being the maximum term for the engagement of a body corporate manager before mm. they need another approval. They want to be there for the long term, yes. um, but they do feel this sense of loyalty to the developer. So it's walking that tightrope of being able to inform and act in the best interests of all of these lot owners that have now come on board while also not getting a developer offside, while somehow trying to, to mm. juggle some sense of community harmony here. It's a tricky relationship and obviously um, it leads to some issues that need to be managed down the track like perhaps building defects. Mm -hmm. uh, body corporate manager will often find themselves in the middle of that kind of situation and that's when you guys come in and you know get engaged and manage this situation of a potential building defect. What have you, have you found are the challenges in terms of building defects? Well, the, the challenge would actually be getting enough awareness that they are difficult things to deal with and getting awareness that owners and, and new committees and new bodies corporate are dealing with very sophisticated operators. Mm. It's not a fair fight, if you want to put it in those yeah. terms. Very few developers build a large residential building because uh, a year or two ago they decided they wanted to get into the development game. They've been doing it for a very long time mm. and they're very sophisticated operators and they know what mm. their obligations are. They also know what their rights are and they know how to play the game for want of a better term. Mm. So a lot of the time when I get consulted with respect to building defects, it's literally five years, five to six years after the establishment of a community title scheme. And for most legal actions, you're looking at a six year limitation period. Mm. So we get the knock on the door when the time to do anything about a defect has almost expired because and all of these committees come to us with the same story we've been negotiating with them for a year or two they keep coming back we keep on reaching these you know um, understandings of what they will and they won't do and they kept on talking to us nicely and they kept on making all the promises in the world but we realized after two years that not a lot was happening mm. it's because these developers they're very clever in what they do and most committee members, most lot owners, um, they act in good faith and with genuine intentions believing that the people that they're dealing with have everyone's best interests at heart. Yeah and of course the QBCC legislation puts in that limitation period and uh, um, when you're nearing the, 
end of that period, uh, it really requires some pretty swift movement, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the the QBCC is just one remedy that's available to those stakeholders in the building industry. A lot of people see the QBCC as some sort of sword to take to builders, but they don't consider themselves to have that role. They act as almost like a, a referee within mm. the building industry. They're looking after the interests of builders as much as they're looking after the interests of consumers. They're going in and they're coming up with what they consider to be the most reasonable outcome if they consider that there is a building defect in the first place. But the legislative cap that's placed upon the QBCC is that they only have the power to direct a builder to rectify defective building works within six years and three months mm. of the building work being completed. If you approach them uh, six years and four months after the building work being completed and things are falling down, it's catastrophic, um, you will get a sympathetic ear at the QBCC, but they will not have the power to do anything about it. That's why it's so imperative to act on these things as, as swiftly as possible. So six years down the track, there's a lot that Body Corporate can do to ensure things have been done right, I guess, um, during that period of time. What are some of the things that, say, a new buyer coming into a scheme, perhaps within the first couple of years, might want to look for? Yeah, in terms of building defects? In terms of building defects and just making sure they've got the right knowledge and advice about what they're actually buying into. Yeah. Well, if we were to start at the back end from building defects, and if, if I could give any advice to, uh, let's say you've bought a lot off the plan, you've taken possession of it, you're settling in, and then you notice a few water leaks here and there, or there's some cracking that you're worried about, painting is fading a lot sooner than what it possibly should, um, what should you do? Well, over at the SCA, the legislation committee has pushed really hard to put in place a legislative process that would not leave it to individual lot owners across all of these different schemes to figure out what's in their best interests. Instead, what we've advocated for is that on the agenda of each annual general meeting for, say, the first five years, statutory motion, just like your audit motion, mm -hmm. just like confirming the minutes, statutory motion for the body corporate to decide whether it wants to bring in a building consultant to go through the scheme to identify whether there's any defects. Basic consumer protection mm. mechanisms so that you can deal with defects that have a lasting effect on a building upfront while they've got the ability to do it. Yeah, so essentially bring in an expert, figure out if there's anything wrong with the building in good time so that the body corporate can then take action within yeah. good time. Yeah, absolutely. Down in New South Wales, they're introducing development bonds Interesting concept, that mm. one. They've got to hold back money because no building's perfect. People have the best intentions. They're incredibly good at what they, they do. But um, any building consultant worth their salt will be able to go through a 20-storey building and find something wrong with it. Mm. doesn't mean the building's going to fall down, but does that mean that the defect doesn't have to be remedied? So down in New South Wales, they've reacted by retaining development bonds so that they can be applied against the cost of defects being repaired as they go through. Significant advancement over to what, as opposed to what we've still got here in Queensland. So running out of time and then having a defect potentially raises tremendous costs to the body corporate, doesn't it? Well, the tremendous cost is always going to be there. It's a question of who's going to bear that cost. Mm. The person that was responsible for the performance of the building work that led to the defect 
or the consumer of the building work that thought they were getting a product fit for purpose. And of course some defects can progress as well, can't they? They can become more costly the longer you leave them. Well, absolutely, and, and that's a large part of the public policy rationale behind having a limitation period mm. or having these time limits. Like, for example, um, with the QBCC, uh, they want you to act promptly. When you notice, say, a structural defect, they'll consider it to be unreasonable to direct a builder to rectify a structural defect if, for example, the consumer knew about it and did nothing about it for two years. Mm. Unreasonable because, well, things get worse when yes. it comes to defects. And the worse it gets, the more expensive the repair bill's going to be. So the rationale for that is if it's important to you as a consumer, as a lot owner, do something about it now. Don't sit on it and wait for you know the next AGM when you might discuss it and come up with an action plan that'll take you 14 months to roll out. Start doing something about it now. Yeah, and of course things in the world of strata take time, don't they? Because you've got legislative processes that have to take place you've got general meetings that need to approve certain courses of action what about the issue about financial uh, position and uh, the developer puts down levies in the first year do you find that when a developer runs a very lean levy regime in the first year that perhaps creates an expectation a wrong expectation about the financial liability for an owner moving forwards yeah, absolutely. So when your average Australian's going out and they're looking at buying a residential property, if it's a property outside of strata, what are they thinking of? They're looking at the purchase price and what it's going to cost from a finance perspective mm. to service that, and they might be interested in rates and water. All right? that's, that's what they know their ongoing financial commitment's going to be. If you're looking to purchase in strata, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You've got those same considerations, but on top of it, you've got to take into account your body corporate levies. We do a lot of recovery work at my firm, and a lot of the time, um, people say, I did not know mm. that once a quarter I'd have to pay these levies. Yeah. In this day and age, you've got to know. So you're looking at buying a unit in a strata complex. You're looking at your mortgage costs, your rates, your water, your utilities, and now your body corporate levies. The added complexity is that if you're buying off the plan, you don't actually know what those costs are going to be, your levies. The developer has to give you a forecast. They've got to set a budget for what they're likely to be. But there's an element of uncertainty there. And there's a, indeed, as you'd appreciate, there's a commercial imperative there. A developer is probably not going to overestimate the budget because then serviceability from the homeowner's perspective becomes a bit more difficult in terms of a conversation. So what I tend to see in practice is they might underestimate what the budget is going to be and then you've got some surprise expenses. But then there's been some more nefarious things that I've seen in practice. Um, that's where a developer, uh, they'll set the budget. The biggest line item in the budget will be caretaking fees. Mm -hmm. At the first general meeting, the developer will grant their associated company the caretaking rights. And while they had the caretaking right, they still owned about 40% of the stock. They still owned about 40% of the units. So they're contributing to the caretaking fees 40% mm -hmm. of the way. And cash flow's a bit tight. So what happened in this situation was that developer, while it had control of the body corporate, came up with this deal where they would provide financial relief for the rest of the lot owners by foregoing payment of the caretaking remuneration for the first couple of years on the understanding that it would be repaid 
from year three onwards. But by year three, they'd sold the rest of the stock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and then you've got this real tension where all of a sudden this massive special levies mm. being put upon these lot owners and they're saying, what for? Well, for the maintenance of a property in the last two years before we're even living here. Yeah, it's a tough situation if you've bought in fairly late in that situation and then you're met with, you know, the special levy. Uh, what about things like um, forecasts, sinking fund forecasts? Often they're very difficult to really understand. In fact, budgeting can be difficult to um, understand the true nature of in a body corporate in the first year until you've, you know, reached a few years down the track. What do you say about um, the the state of the levies and what a lot owner can do to really understand when they do a search what their financial position could be in the forthcoming years? Yeah, so a, a lot owner buying into an already established scheme. Yes. Um, I, I think it would start by having a look at the financial statements and the minutes of recent committee meetings. Because the, the financial statements will obviously give you a view of the financial health of uh, that particular scheme, that strata community. But you need to look at the minutes of the committee meeting to understand, because they're going to tell you a story, aren't they, Mark? Mm. You know yourself. Yeah. Um, Well-kept minutes uh, of committee meetings will tell you the story of how that community governs itself, how busy it is in its governance, mm. um, how often they're meeting. You know, The more often they meet, the more responsive they're going to be to problems that arise and perhaps the more proactive they're going to be mm. as well. And it's going to give you a good indication of what's going to happen in the future based on the decisions that the committee is making at that particular time. But if in doubt, my advice would be there's a lot of consultants out there in the, in the industry that can look after people that are making these significant decisions to buy in strata that can go in there, review the records, they know what they're looking for and they'll produce a report saying these are the concerns that you ought to have or I give it a clean bill of health. There's mm. people out there that do it. But I think the problem is from a conveyancing perspective, people are looking to keep their costs down and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because buying a property whether it's in a strata community or not, just buying a property is probably the most significant financial decision that people are going to make. And it's probably not the right time mm -hmm. to be a little bit skimp on the advice that you're going to take. Absolutely. And there's a lot of long-term impacts when you, when you buy into a, a property that perhaps hasn't had the benefit of the proactive committee. Mm. Um, what kind of disputes do you find moving forwards with a developer that still has perhaps a stock of lots and still maintains some sway with the committee. Um, you, what kinds of disputes have you found uh, in that uh, circumstance? Most of the disputes are uh, political power plays when the developer still holds on to stock because when they're holding on to stock, it's because they can't get rid of it. And that usually causes a bit of financial distress to their company. So they don't want a body corporate going off on a frolic and making big spending decisions, big improvement decisions. So they want to retain some sort of control over what's happening. So you have this fierce competition for who's going to hold the majority on a committee. And then even you go to general meetings, um, then you've got competition for whether particular motions are going to pass or not. So you deal with queries you know, along the lines of uh, lot owners will say, I've put this motion to a general meeting, you know, proposing that action be taken over the building defects. 
but I'm worried that the developer's just going to vote it all down. Isn't that a conflict of interest? Mm. It is a conflict of interest, but that doesn't stop the developer from exercising their proprietary right mm. to vote on those particular motions. So a large part of these disputes are an educative process. They come to me as disputes because people have already started down that path. If they came to a lawyer or any sort of strata consultant before it turned into a dispute, it may very well be a different story. We speak a different language, as you'd appreciate, yes. Mark. Those that are um, au fait with strata law and strata management in general, we know what we're looking for. Mm. We've seen it dozens, if not hundreds of times before, and getting in nice and early can really be where you generate value for these communities that are taking back control. You take back control in the most effective way that you possibly can and avoid the disputes, so, pop out of them. So if you're a lot owner and you've identified some, some things that need addressing, you feel that a consultant needs to be engaged or a lawyer mm -hmm. to provide advice, at least up front, with a view to perhaps further action down the track. What can a lot owner do when it's battling a fairly large contingent uh, holder of lots that perhaps sees different uh, ideas about uh, raising such disputes. The first thing they can do is they can pick up the phone, right? Or in today's 21st century, they can just get on the email and, and start communicating with somebody that, that could help them. Uh, the problem that I see is that they don't do that first. They see it as it rightly is, as a political power play, right and wrong. So a lot of lot owners, these are their homes. This is the thing about strata litigation. Mm. It's a very emotional area of the law. It is. Okay. Most litigators are dealing in a commercial scene where you've got businesses in completely separate registered addresses, far removed from each other, and they've only ever communicated by electronic means, and then all of a sudden they've fallen into dispute mm. over money, for example. Yeah. In strata, it's different. More often than not, they're living with each other. They've got to get into the same lift together. Mm. They've got to share the same pool. They can't stand the sight of this other person mm. that's been sending them these terrible emails. So you've got this emotional element of it. So people get caught up in that emotional game of strata and then they start managing the dispute themselves. And then they come to us, they serve up the scrambled egg and they mm. say, we need you to unscramble it mm. now. So that's why I say the first thing that they, that they should be doing is really picking up the phone because it is a political power game and there's a lot that minority owners can do to hold back a little bit of control, to steer their community in the right direction. But sometimes the best advice could be to do nothing. Mm. Don't frustrate yourself. Don't stay up late at night worrying about what this developer with majority control is doing or what they're not doing because the reality is, the hard advice may be, there's not a lot that you can do about it right now. You've just got to ride the wave and wait for your opportunity to come when that control period will end. And you spoke about this earlier, it's about access to records as well and, and informing yourself. Some advice to lot owners who want to get involved um, in the happenings of the body corporate, I guess getting on the committee and accessing records. What other things do you think you might find a, a lot owner might want to do to better inform themselves? First thing is they don't even have to get on the committee. They can just attend committee meetings. They give their notice, they can go and they can watch and they can observe mm. what's going on. Second thing they can do is if they've taken an interest in the strata law, they can better inform themselves. There's some wonderful literature out there which will teach them in very simple terms 
what's going on so at least they can start talking that language your textbook's a good example of it mm. there's a lot out there you've got the information service um, run by the commissioner for body corporate and community management mm. he runs regular seminars there's industry associations out there like strata community association there's a lot of people out there that will better inform you mm. and will equip you with how to deal with your problem um, so that you don't feel as though you're on an island mm. and it's a you know, David and Goliath fight. It appears to be a David and Goliath f fight, but knowledge is power. And if you don't have the knowledge, you're going to find it difficult to find your power in that particular situation. And then, of course, you've got emerging issues like Airbnb and towing and pets that body corporate developers need to be aware of uh, when they set down their bylaws. What are some of the challenges in perhaps a developer putting in place, a responsible developer, putting in place measures that look forward to the future? I think a large part of it really starts with the caretaking agreements. So in, in Queensland, we've got this unique phenomenon of management rights mm. that's essentially been created by legislation. And like it or not, and there's a lot in the industry that don't like it, but I'm a realist with this, mm. not an idealist. Mm. We've got management rights in Queensland. We've got to make the most of it. And when it comes to these new developments, what could a developer do looking to the future? Well, instead of buying the, uh, the boilerplate agreement from their developer lawyer who framed it off the boilerplate agreement of a management rights lawyer, mm -hmm. talk to other consultants in the industry, you know, like your, your Barry Turner, your Danny Little, your David Leary. Have a chat to these consultants. Their job, their profession is going from one strata community to the next and saying what is needed to maintain this property in the best condition. And what does that look like on a daily basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, quarterly basis, and set out really prescriptive duties and then set fair and reasonable remuneration. These mm. people do this for a living. Use these people at the, at the outset of a development to set it up so that you don't have to fall into this dispute with lot owners that, that may see there to be a conflict of interest in the creation of management rights. Set it up on the right terms so that it is a value proposition for both parties and lot owners can see the value that they're getting. And you touched on the issue of remuneration of caretaker, caretaking and, and letting rights there. A caretaker will often be the developer, um, they'll, they'll have that through a different company. But um, what happens when that remuneration upfront looks sound but then you factor in things like CPI or percentage increases? What are some of the issues that lot owners can confront and perhaps what can they do about it? Yeah, so uh, a lot of my client base, um, their committees and their bodies corporate that have been in management rights for decades. And the agreement might have been set in place in the 90s and it hasn't changed, as you've alluded to. There was a base rate of remuneration and it kept on going up year by year by CPI. And then eventually they look at it and they think, well, is this still a good value proposition because it's been indexed on a yearly basis? What can they do? They can take some legal advice on their contract to see whether there's an ability to review it to market. Yeah, yeah. And if there isn't, they can look for an opportunity to negotiate that into their agreement. Mm -hmm. And there's many opportunities to do that, but you've got to be a comedian, you've got to be assertive enough to mm -hmm. look for those opportunities and press for that. I guess one of those opportunities might be when the original owner slash developer wants to sell the management rights, there might be some leverage there against uh, allowing that process to run smoothly. 
What are some of the things you find uh, that perhaps a body corporate can do when, you know, they're nearing that end of the first mm. period of the caretaking management rights there? Yeah, so I think what you're alluding to, Mark, is uh, when an agreement is set up at the start of a development, it's put in place by the developer and given to one of its companies. Mm. So it's entered into during what we call the original owner control period, when the developer has absolute control. And I think what we're looking at is, if you're worried about the fairness of remuneration, what can you do as a lotter? And it's something that I alluded to a little bit earlier, and it's requesting that review under the legislation of the fairness and reasonableness, particularly of the remuneration. That's the yardstick that you can Mm -hmm. do. But again, like all things with the law, you're running on a short leash. You're running out of time the longer you leave it. You've got the ability to review that and you've got to exercise that right as soon as you possibly can. And it doesn't necessarily arise when the developer wants to sell. You may very well have lost that right if the developer does in fact sell. You've got to be proactive and you've got to ask the question as soon as it pops into your head. And I guess what is fair remuneration? You spoke about the use of consultants in a variety of different issues. Um, do you think it's perhaps something that bodies corporates can look at uh, getting consultant in to actually assist in that review? Yeah, absolutely. When people say what's fair remuneration, uh, your average committee member or lot owner will say, well, look, I own multiple strata properties and what we're paying the caretaker over here is X and what mm-hmm. we're paying the caretaker over there is Y. So why are we paying Z? That doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me. That's not the way that they go about it because no property is the same. Um, They're all little individual snowflakes Mm. and that's what these consultants do. They don't look at it and say, okay, well, the last 20 lot building that I went through was only paying 35 grand, so this one should probably be 35. They don't look at it from that. Mm. They look at the unique features of a building. How large is the common property? What sort of facilities are there? Of the facilities, what standard do they need to be kept to? And they come up with these very detailed work schedules Mm. and then they assess away by reference to industry rates or... uh, any other guidance that they can find for what a fair and reasonable remuneration is based on the time it would take an average caretaker to do it. So what could a committee do? You can get in touch with these consultants and they can do that audit of your particular property and give you a view. That doesn't mean that you can impose that figure on your caretaker, but at least you're armed with knowledge that you can use when you do go into negotiations Mm. and an opportunity arises to rebalance that agreement. And of course, um, the scopes of duties are different, aren't they? From one caretaker to another, Mm. uh, one caretaking agreement there. What happens when the scope is not being fulfilled? I'm guessing you would deal with those kinds of issues um, quite frequently. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I generally call it underperformance. When a committee's got concern that a caretaker's not doing the job that's required of them, what can they do? They can do a lot. There's a number of different options available to them. You go to one lawyer and they'll answer the term in simple terms. They'll answer the question in simple terms rather. They'll say, well, you can issue a breach notice. Mm -hmm. They're not doing their job. You issue them notice. You've failed to do these duties in this particular way. We need you to remedy the breach. You've got 14 days, otherwise we're going to terminate the engagement. Mm -hmm. That's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it could be having a close and intelligent look at the situation. And what is it? that's causing this underperformance? Is it that you've got a lazy caretaker in there? Is it that you've got a caretaker that's enthusiastic but doesn't actually know what they should be doing? 
Is it in fact they're doing the job that's required of them under the agreement, but the committee might have unrealistic expectations? So there's a number of different causes for the problem that might actually arise within the scope of my practice. And that's why it's not a one-size-fits-all. And indeed, that's the approach that I take uh, to the way that I practice law. It's, it's having a close look at the situation and figuring out what's really going on. And for most caretaking disputes, what's really going on is a relationship problem or a personality problem personality either on the part of a caretaker that doesn't want to be there or may very well have a uh, relationship clash with somebody on the committee and all of a sudden it becomes a Mexican standoff. They don't like to be told what to do. One way of solving it may be issuing breach notices and moving to terminate. That's one way of solving it. It may not be the most effective way of solving it. And of course that particular way of solving the problem doesn't do much to the relationship, does it, uh, moving forwards? it can strain the relationship and make it more difficult to manage even the small issues. Absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head and it sort of brings up the point that I was making earlier. Strata litigation is an emotional business, particularly when it gets to caretaking disputes. Not many people like to be told that you're doing a terrible job. Not many people like to hear that. And they don't like to hear it from somebody that probably hasn't been a caretaker themselves and walks around with a clipboard. <laughs> but these people are ultimately living in the same community. And when you get in a clash like that, um, tempers are gonna flare. And you said it doesn't do a lot to the relationship. It may do a lot to the relationship. It may completely throw it out the window. And what started off as an initial dispute about the quality of a service being provided by the caretaker has turned into something else entirely. Mm. And that's the thing about strata litigation. If it's not managed properly by the right person, a dispute about one particular thing in six to 12 months turns into a dozen disputes about different things because lawyers that act against bodies corporate are getting more sophisticated. And when they get into a dispute uh, with a body corporate, they'll start picking at the body corporate. Well, do you have a proper expenditure approval for that? Did you call your general meeting on at least 21 days notice? And then all of a sudden, the body corporate has the fight being taken to it. It just started off wanting to enforce compliance with a caretaking agreement. And two years later, it's fighting about things that have nothing to do with compliance with a caretaking agreement. Again, because you're dealing with a tricky area of law, you're dealing with over-prescriptive, incomprehensible legislation at times. So that's why it needs to be delicately handled. And you said it rightly, it is very prescriptive, and but you're dealing with relationships. So mm. how do you reconcile those two matters? Is it a case of the parties meeting in good faith and perhaps having a professional involved to facilitate some kind of discussion, dialogue and maybe resolution? That could be one way to solve it. You know, if the cause of it might be a breakdown in a working relationship, misunderstandings or poor expectations mm. or false expectations indeed. Um, it could be that people are dealing with a written document that sets out very generic duties that says, for example, that the caretaker must, as reasonably required, hose the driveways. Well, what does that mean? Who's assessing what's reasonably required? You'll have a chairperson that might be assessing it to the highest possible standard and a caretaker driven by commercial priorities trying to assess it by a lower standard. Mm. Involving um, third-party intermediaries, these consultants, mediators, to go through this can be a very effective way of diminishing the potential for a dispute because they'll mm. go in there and they'll give their unbiased view of what is reasonably required. And like any mediation, 
um, it's very difficult to get both parties to walk out with big smiles on their faces. Parties need to compromise, and, and that's what's needed in that conciliatory spirit when you go down these paths. But if you're not willing to walk that path of compromise, someone else is going to decide the dispute for you, and it's going to be very expensive for yeah. somebody else to decide that dispute for you. So it's more a case of can you live with the outcome? As you said, the parties aren't always going to be happy with it, but can they live with it? And can they move forwards and preserve the relationship? Because as you said, they're up to 25-year contracts mm -hmm. and, and they can be varied as well. So you can have them rolling on 25 years and that keeps getting topped up. In terms of um, moving down that more uh, dispute resolution pathway, um, what are some of the things that you'd recommend perhaps a committee do to perhaps motivate parties to go down that pathway? Firstly, understand what the real problem is. So particularly in today's day and age when everyone's communicating via email, there's a lot that's left unsaid. A lot. So if you're dealing with disputes within a strata community, the first thing that I'd recommend is pick up the phone or invite them to the next committee meeting. Hear from them what their ultimate concern is and identify because it may not maybe something completely unrelated to that aggressive email that they sent you at 2 a.m. On, uh, on a Sunday morning. It may be something else entirely that motivated that. Find out what's really the issue and then diagnose that issue with appropriate experts. The first port of call may be your strata community manager. They may be able to help you because they've probably dealt with these situations in the past. If it's complex enough, involve a mediator or a lawyer that can give you some advice. While there may very well be a cost to it in financial terms, there's a cost to these disputes if you're not willing to resolve them in the right way. And that's the emotional cost and the impact on the community of having all of these disputes break out between people. Because at the end of the day, um, I think the aim for most consultants in the strata industry, you know, whether that's body corporate managers or lawyers, we ultimately want to work towards more harmonious communities. Because it's easier for us to look after harmonious communities. It's a more pleasant job for us. Um, I'm a lawyer, but not all of the work that I do is dispute resolution. If every community had a sense of harmony, I'd still have a very healthy job, mm. still have a very healthy practice. Um, it just wouldn't be dealing with as many disputes. And you pointed to the strata manager or body corporate manager. What can they do to bring the committee at large towards getting some good advice, say, from someone like yourself um, and or a consultant? What can they do to persuade and provide that advice if they can't give it themselves? Well, uh, I think a large part of it just starts with confidence. It starts with confidence in the relationship that a committee has with the body corporate manager. Most body corporate managers that I work with typically say, the committee has said that they'll go with my recommendation. That's a very, very powerful relationship that they've mm. got. It's a great sense of confidence. And I think that's what should ultimately define the relationship between a committee and their body corporate manager. It's a very intimate relationship mm. that's built on trust and confidence. Um, and what a strata manager should do is earn their trust and earn their confidence. And then they will be a lot more receptive to the advice that you might give them. Your advice may not solve their situation but it's to set them on a path. A lot of strata managers see themselves as introducers of relationships 
they manage different relationships. They manage a relationship with the committee, with owners, with the caretakers, with different service providers. And what they do is they weave this tangled web, introducing different people, ultimately with the goal of connecting people to make the communities work better. And it's a difficult thing to really understand when you, in, in a strata manager's shoes, to understand it first and deep and then be able to refer to the right people and to speak the right dialogue in that kind of relationship sense. Mm. So in terms of some of the issues that you're dealing with um, through Strata Community Association, what are some of the things in the horizon do you think that might help make things better for the development scene, for lot owners buying in off the plan after the, within the uh, control period? the developer and maybe even afterwards. We've already spoken quite a lot about legislative reform. That's probably the starting point. Just getting this legislative reform through will go put us miles ahead mm. in uh, correcting some of the imbalances in the industry. The second thing is just education and education and then education. Mm. The more the community knows about strata and how bodies corporate work, the more they'll be able to take back control of their investments, the more effective they're going to be to push an agenda. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Mm. A lot of lot owners say, what can I do about it? I'm just one of 170 stakeholders within this building. There's a lot that you can do. That You just need to be armed with the knowledge of what you can do in the most effective way that you can do it. And then finally, it's essentially creating support networks, isn't it? I think you put it rightly. The very baseline common denominator here is about education and knowledge, isn't it? Even against the backdrop of very complicated, voluminous legislation, uh, there's a lot that can be said about arming oneself with, with the right knowledge through the right channels. And, and of course, uh, you know, I know yourself um, doing a lot to promote education of managers and pushing those boundaries of lot owner empowerment which is a wonderful thing through um, SCA. Yeah absolutely I mean SCA does have a lot of its members as body corporate managers as strata community managers a lot of our members are that a lot of our members are also service providers people that assist the strata industry some of our members as well are lot owners and committee members it's a very open accessible mm. uh, association that's there as an industry body for everyone in strata mm. to open doors and introduce people so that they can work together in different ways and more harmonious ways. And also, as you pointed out earlier, to tap into the Body Corporate Commission's office um, offerings and uh, those listening might be aware of or may not be aware of uh, the uh, strata online course that, um, that, that they can tap into. They can also join SCA and become better informed that way. And of course, um, there's a lot of information on, on, the, uh, on the web, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you do have the information service through the, uh, the commissioner's office mm. and they do have, uh, I think they call it the online training for committee members. Yeah. They base that off different modules that they have that are publicly accessible. Mm. They run community forums. It seems like it's about once a quarter now mm. in different regions as well. That's one thing that the commissioner's office does very well. They cater for the different regions across all of Queensland. It's not a Brisbane-centric thing. Mm. They run them in all these different areas and the SCA models its approach on what the Commissioner's Office has done and it runs around to all the regional areas as well. So a large part of it is actually just reaching out to these industry associations, connecting with them 
if nothing else than just subscribing to their newsletter or applying for membership so that you hear of these opportunities. You can go there and you build support networks that way. You get introduced and you form new relationships mm -hmm. because in today's day and age, when information is accessible at the press of a button, why wouldn't you want to know more people? Why wouldn't you want to establish these relationships so that you at least have a phone number and you can bounce an idea off somebody? And of course, um, a lot of law firms have uh, quite a wealth of knowledge and, and I know Grace Lawyers um, also has quite a bit of information about body corporate law and, uh, and I know you've written about uh, a lot of very interesting topics on the law and with new um, issues that arise from time to time. So that's another wealth of knowledge there. Yeah, well, a lot of service providers, lawyers, myself included, we've got a lot of time for people that are interested in the strata industry, a lot of time. And um, I know myself, I'm very receptive to picking up the phone, to answering queries. I give a lot of my time back to the industry, mm -hmm. a lot of my time. Um, my firm's quite large, so I'm lucky enough to, to be able to have that resource, to give myself that room, to give back to the industry. And a lot of the time it's just answering a phone call from a frustrated committee member mm. that says, here's the problem, and redirecting them yeah. to release that frustration, you know, sharing some of the knowledge that I have, and a lot of that I do free of charge. And it's often about providing hope. Very difficult in an emotional situation, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with a committee at the moment that came to me saying um, it looks as though we're going to have a sale of management rights from the developer and we need you to overlook all of that. And they were very firm. This is your brief. This is what you need to do. This is what we expect of you. And I immediately just wiped the slate clean on that and I said, that's not in your best interests. Mm -hmm. Your best interests lie somewhere else. And this is where it lies and this is how we're going to do it. And it took them a while to, mm -hmm. to sort of take that advice. But um, we've been working together for many months now and they took that advice because I've done it dozens if not hundreds mm -hmm. of times before I've walked that path and they're more receptive to it and we've added a lot of value to that community. And we've talked about it a bit during this conversation. It's about having the right consultant, the right advisor to give you cogent information that you can then apply and uh, move forwards for be better outcomes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it comes down to having confidence mm -hmm. in the people that you align your relationships with having confidence in the service that they provide and the quality of advice that they give and the introductions that they give to you as well. Well, uh, Jason Carlson, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on board. That's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Let's Talk Strata podcast. For your fortnightly dose of Strata insights, stimulating discussion with leading Strata professionals, and to catch up on previous episodes, subscribe to the podcast through letstalkstrata.com.au.